First of all, thanks very much for those kind words of appreciation and for including Dawn. And I just want to let you know that goes both ways. I appreciate you as a congregation more than you know. Uh, it is a joy to serve with you, so thank you for uh, being who you are. Well, let's go ahead and turn to Job chapter 19. We're going to continue our series. So this is Job chapter 19, the whole chapter 1 through 29. So page 429 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask, as always, for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Give us the eyes to see your truth and the willingness and ability to apply it to our own lives. Father, we do want to see the true meaning of this passage, and we also want to understand it so that we're able to to carry it forward in our own lives. So, Father, that's our prayer. We ask it in faith, and we trust that you will answer us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you may or may not be aware of, in the game of chess, there are three components to the game. There are three divisions that are widely recognized. The first one is the opening. This includes the the, the first moves of the chess uh, pieces. So so moving a, a few pawns out or a few pieces in development to try to gain control of those center squares. And after the opening, this is followed by the mid-game. And this includes uh, the the full development of all your pieces and uh, trying to gain an advantage over your opponent, trying to capture as many pieces as you can of theirs. And then finally, after the last large exchange of pieces, when there's only a few pieces left on the board, that's called the end game. So maybe the queens have been exchanged, but each player still has their king, obviously, and then maybe... Uh, One player has a rook, and the other player has a a bishop and a knight, and a few straggling pawns are still on the board. From that point forward, that's called the end game. There aren't aren't a whole lot of options at that point. They're, They're simply trying to close out the game and win. So that phrase has been around for a while now, and it used to apply only to chess, but now it's become broader in its meaning. If you hear that phrase, end game, Um, you know that it applies more to just chess. It it applies to any final stages of a process. So, for example, if you're changing the oil and you're out underneath the the vehicle and you've you've taken the drain plug off, the the oil's drained out, you've got the filter off, you put the new one on, you got the plug back on, and now you're back up top and somebody comes out and says, are you almost done? And you can say, yeah, I'm in the end game here. I'm just putting the last bit of the new oil in. Or if you're making a cake, and you put all the ingredients together and they get mixed up and uh, you, do the, you do the baking and the cooling and the assembling and, and you're putting the frosting on, that's the end game. Are we almost ready to eat? Yes. Yes, I'm in the end game. Or if you're a student and you're closing out a semester and you've done all this hard work and you've turned in all the assignments and it's finals week and all your papers are done and maybe even a few of the, the exams are out of the way, you have a few finals left. That's the end game. You're almost there. What about life? 
Does life have an end game? Yes. Yes, it does. What happens at the end? The end game of life. When we look at Job chapter 19, Job is showing us his end game. The end game to his life. Now, Job chapter 19 is arguably the most famous chapter in the entire book because of the Redeemer verses. In fact, this this chapter, Job chapter 19, is specifically verses 25 through 27, has been called the clearest expressions of the Old Testament expectation of a Redeemer and the hope of the resurrection. The clearest expressions in the entire Old Testament. So this is a this is a power chapter right here. This is a biggie in the Old Testament. So because of that, it's tempting to look at those Redeemer passages, or excuse me, those Redeemer verses. It's tempting to go right there and, and simply focus on Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. And, and that is there. We are going to hit that. But that's not the only thing we're going to hit. We want to see this in context. If we were do, simply doing a topical study on, on Jesus Christ and, and the redemption of Jesus, we could come here and just look at those verses. But remember, we're going through the whole book, and our commitment is to always see it in context. So what is the context of Job chapter 19? Well, Job chapter 18. And if you remember from last week, Job chapter 18 was about Bildad giving Job a a picture of the place where the wicked man goes. You remember that? And we called it a fixer-upper speech because it had good bones. It had the structure and, and the, the information about where the wicked man goes was accurate. It's an inescapable place of, of darkness, terror, fire, and eternal separation. That's true. But we called it a fixer-upper because it was missing an essential component. It was missing repentance. It was missing an appeal to turn to God in faith. But the structure was sound. So Job chapter 18, or excuse me, uh, yes, excuse me, Job chapter 18 was Bildad providing a picture of Job's endgame. You remember, that's essentially what Bildad was saying. He's saying, Job, you recognize that place? That's where you're going. That's your endgame. And so Job chapter 19, the thrust of it, although we have these powerful Redeemer passages, in context, this is Job answering Bildad, rejecting his endgame, and presenting his own. Job says, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to end for me. This is how it's going to end for me. And this end game of Job's is based on the reality of his Redeemer. Because as he puts forth his picture, his end game picture, it's based on the reality of his Redeemer. It's not a daydream. It's not a wishful thinking. It's a reality. So we're going to take some time and and look at this endgame statement of Job that includes and is based upon the reality of his Redeemer. And then when we move from the then to the now, when we seek to apply this passage, it's going to get very personal very quickly. Because the the question that we're immediately faced with is, what's my endgame? What does my endgame look like? So that's where we're headed. Let's now look at this and keep that, that contextual information in mind as we read through this chapter. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? 
These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know that when God is know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I must stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Chapter 19 begins with Job rebuking his friends. There's a lot of back and forth in that. Like that in Job, you'll you'll see each one of them as they begin whatever they're going to say. There's often some some personal comments, some kind of rebuke. So he, he begins by rebuking his friends He's rebuking Bildad's fixer-upper hell speech that he delivered last, last time and says, how long will you torment me? In other words, how, how much is enough? Guys, have you had enough yet? Do you need to keep talking to me? Aren't you satisfied? Are you done? These ten times you have cast reproach on me? No, not a literal ten times. Somebody might be... Going back and saying, okay, one, two. That's not a literal ten times. When often, when, when a round number like ten is used, it's used to denote um, repeated um, or, or again and again, over and over again, would be the phrase that comes to mind. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And the answer is no. His friends are not ashamed of their actions. They've been attacking Job. They have no scruples about treating Job the way they have been. 
And then in verse 4, even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. Now Job's not confessing, he's not saying, well, actually, if I had done anything to deserve all this suffering, that's not what he's saying. This is a hypothetical scenario in which he says, even if that were true, even if I had done something to deserve all the suffering I'm receiving right now, that's between me and God. That's a personal thing. It's none of your business. In verse 5 and 6, he's describing them, describing them, if indeed you magnify yourselves against me. They have been magnifying themselves against Job. Remember? They, they have been saying, I'm better than you. They have been saying, we know more than you, Job. Accept what we're saying. We're wiser than you. They have been elevating themselves and make my disgrace an argument against me. That's exactly what they've been doing. They've been pointing to Job's suffering, all the things that he's, he's encountered, the loss of his children, the loss of his wealth and his possessions, his, the loss of his health. They've been saying that, your, your disgrace, proves that you deserve the suffering that you're getting. So that, that's exactly what they're doing. They're taking his disgrace and using it as an argument against him. And then he says, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed this net about me. Job's saying, no, 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 no. It's not because I deserve this. He's maintaining his integrity. The reason all these things have, has happened to me is not because I deserve it. It's because God, for whatever reason, has done it. God is the sender. And that's really what a lot of the book is, is about, is Job trying to figure out why God would be doing this to him. Remember from his perspective, this just does not add up. He's wondering why. But it's, it's not because of, of the fact that he deserves it. Verse 7, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I cry for help, but there is no justice. Like someone being attacked, Job is crying out for help, and God is not answering him. And remember, that's the source of his biggest pain, that God has treated him like an enemy. So verses 8 through 11 is, again, from Job's perspective, it seems like God is the one attacking him. So God has done, he's, God has done it. He's the sender of the suffering. Now, is it true that God is the one who's doing this to him? Well, yes and no. Is God the sender? Yes. But he's using human agency. Or, excuse me, he's using satanic agency. Remember? Satan's the one who said, let me at him. And God said, okay, you're permitted this far and no more. So yes, God is the sender, but from Job's perspective, it just, it just doesn't make sense because it seems like all the friendship and the fellowship he had with God has just been thrown out the window, and God is against him. He stopped treating him like a friend. He started treating him like an enemy. And in fact, if you run your eye down uh, verses 8 through 13, you look how many of those lines start with a pronoun, either he or his, he has walled up my way. He has set my darkness, or has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory. He breaks me down. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. God has done this to him, and that's the source of his greatest pain. As Job looks over the, the tragedy that has become his life, he has done it. He has done it. He has done it. And that's what hurts the most. 
Verse 12 is more language that supports this theme of being attacked like a walled city with an enemy surrounding him. Job has God coming at him with siege works. And then the next section, God has cut me off, uh, verses 13 through 19. If, if verses 8 through 11 were God is attacking me, verses 13 through 19 are he's cut me off. He's cut me off. Uh, 13, he's cut me off from my brothers. 14, relatives and close friends. Verse 15, guests in my house. 16, his servant. His servant doesn't even answer Job. Now, servants in the ancient Near East often developed a very strong friendship-type bond with those that they served. They often were treated almost as family. And we can imagine that was probably the relationship that Job had with his servants. They were very close. They trusted each other. And they were also very eager to please. Servants wanted to serve their master well so they could hear, well done, good, faithful servants. So he was probably right there whenever Job called to him. Now, hmm, won't even answer him. Verse 17, his wife and the children of his own mother. My breath is strange. She doesn't even want to be near him. Verse 18, young children. Even young children. This is a whole new low. Again, if we can place ourselves in the shoes of those who lived in the ancient Near East, um, we, we expect today children to, to respect adults and their parents and things like that. Multiply that by a thousand. Children were taught to respect their elders. Job says, even the children are mocking me. Even the children are ridiculing me. Verse 19, intimate friends, those whom I love, turned against him. God has cut him off from everyone in his life. And then a cry for mercy, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's telling his his friends, hey, I'm barely alive here. I'm, I'm just barely hanging on. Have mercy on me two times, O you, my friends. Can't you see I'm dying? Just give me a break. Just back off for a minute, please. Ease up. Why do you let God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Why do you keep coming at me? Enough is enough. I've got God coming at me, sending fresh troops wave after wave against me, and you guys too. I thought you were my friends. Isn't, isn't, uh, are you not satisfied with my flesh? Isn't the fact that I'm sitting here with loathsome sores from head to toe, isn't that enough for you? Why do you need to, to grind your heel into my neck? And then finally we get to the Redeemer verses. Verses 23 through 27, as part of his response to Bildad, He speaks about his Redeemer. So what Job says here has two parts. There is a longing and there's a statement of faith. So we're going to break it down and let's look at at both of those. First, the longing. Verses 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. So here's the sense of this. Job wants his words written down permanently. He wants them inscribed so that those who come after him will know the truth. Because right now, what do we see in Job? A lot of back and forth. 
a lot of uh, their words against his words. It's what he said versus what he said. So it's back and forth. And right now it looks like Job is at the end. It looks like he's finishing out his end game. He doesn't think he's going to be around for very much longer. And if he's gone and the three friends are left, then who gets the last word? The three friends. So Job's thinking ahead. He's saying, I don't want them to continue to smear my reputation and to to paint this false picture of what's happening. I want my words to be recorded so that those who come after me know the truth. So his longing is that they would be written down. And he first says in a scroll. Those those weren't everyday things. Uh, Those were somewhat rare to, to have a scroll. They cost a lot of money. They cost a lot of money to copy and to write and make. So his first thought is a scroll, and then, then he essentially says, no, you want to scratch that. I want something even more permanent. I want these to be engraved in rock. Now, we have uh, rock tablets from thousands and thousands of years ago today, and they're still readable. So the, he's, he's headed in the right direction. He knows what he's talking about. I want my words written down in stone so that after I'm gone, these guys can't smear my reputation and that somebody knows later on that I was not suffering because I deserved it. This was undeserved suffering and that I'm rejecting their end game and I'm putting my own game forward. So that's his longing. Was Job's longing realized? I would say yes. I would say even more permanent than written down on a rock tablet, which may or may not be found thousands of years later. Instead, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, inspired these words to be written down in his word. And we are literally reading them today. So that is fulfillment of Job's longing. Mission accomplished. That's been fulfilled. Now, that that was the longing fulfilled. Now for the statement of faith. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. My heart faints within me. That's the heart of this chapter, and really it's, it's the most famous line in the entire book. It's, I would imagine, by far the most quoted line. But what exactly is he saying here? Let's let's break this down. This deserves, you know, putting it down in four low and just crawling around for a little while here. So, number one, he says, for I know. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, and I, I know. And that's there for, for emphasis. He could have just said, I know. There's one word in Hebrew that, says, that means I know. He could have just started that. But instead there, there's, and I, I know. That, that's for emphasis. In other words, this is not a daydream. Remember earlier, he was, he was kind of uh, what-ifing about some kind of advocate. No, that, this is no daydream. This is an emphatic, I know, Statement of faith. So I know, uh, and I, I know, that my Redeemer lives. Redeemer. Um, 
From the rest of the Old Testament, we know that the Redeemer was a kinsman Redeemer. So this was the Redeemer in the Old Testament uh, under Mosaic law was somebody who uh, was a family member, the closest family member, who would come to another family member's aid in a time of need. Okay, now this is pre-Mosaic law, so he didn't know the full meaning of what a kinsman redeemer was, but he's using that word, that ga'al, in, in the Hebrew word for redeemer. For example, a ga'al, a redeemer, would buy back family property. Leviticus 25, 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Redeemer, ga'al the kinsman redeemer. He was also charged with the responsibility to avenge a murdered relative. That was the justice system in those days. Remember, they were a theocracy. So if there was a murder, the one who was to impose the death penalty on the one who murdered was the closest redeemer, or the kinsman redeemer of the family member that was murdered. Numbers 35, 19. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. So avenger of blood. This is not some guy uh, who has an office called avenger of blood who wears a, a black hood or, and carries a big axe or something like that. This is the nearest family member. When it says avenger of blood, that's that redeemer word. It's that same Hebrew word, ga'al of blood, redeemer of blood. Okay, so that was one of his responsibilities. And of course, the whole book of Ruth is about Boaz performing his duty as kinsman redeemer. Uh, and, and, marry, and buying back the property and, and marrying uh, the widow Ruth. Uh, Ruth 4.4 4 says this, and this is the context of this, is Boaz talking to the nearest kinsman redeemer and saying, look, are you going to fulfill your duty or not? Because if you're not, then I will. He says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and, after, and I come after you. Okay? kinsman redeemer. So the reason God gave instructions for a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament practically, first of all, it was so that one family member could come to the aid of another family member in a time of need. But in addition to that, it was to give his people a picture of what God as the ultimate redeemer looks like. God is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. God is our ultimate one who comes to our aid. Exodus 6.6 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So there's redeemer in the fullest sense of the word, right? He's, he's coming to their aid and he's executing judgment and vengeance on their enemies. Gaal, redeemer rescues and brings judgment. Uh, Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So God is the ultimate redeemer and he's given his people a picture of what redeemer looks like in the kinsman redeemer. And that's supposed to point them to the ultimate redeemer. So, who is this redeemer that Job knows is alive and living. Who is this Redeemer who will be Job's advocate and that he will see? We'll need to keep going. He says, For I, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. 
stand upon the earth. This heavenly redeemer will stand upon the earth. So this redeemer will be an actual man who stands upon the earth like all other men. Okay, well, that gives us some information. Now, stand upon the earth can be translated as rise above or triumph over, and earth can be translated as dust. So to rise above or triumph over like a a victory, a victorious king, uh, triumph or rising over an enemy, in that sense. And dust can also mean death or grave. And in fact, if we you don't even have to turn your Bible in chapter 17, verse 16, it's used in that context. Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? And dust there means grave or death. So, to rise above or triumph over the dust or the grave, this Redeemer will rise above and triumph over death and the grave. Isn't that interesting? So if you're tracking so far, we've got Job placing his faith in a living Redeemer who both comes to his aid and brings judgment on his enemies, who stands on the earth like other men do, but who also rises and triumphs over death and the grave, which no mortal man has the power to do. And now let's look at how Job's faith in this Redeemer will benefit him. He goes on, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Seeing God. So this is a statement of faith that Job is going to be seeing God after his skin is destroyed. Meaning what? After he dies. After he dies, he's going to see God with his own eyes. So what is he expecting? Resurrection. He's he's expecting to be brought back with a body. That's why it says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's expecting a body after he dies. So the God that he sees is also the Redeemer. Remember, he's still talking about the Redeemer, the God that that he will see and will stand on the earth is this Redeemer. So the Redeemer is divine, and that's why Redeemer is capitalized. If you look in verse 25, Redeemer, capital R. It's because that's the correct translation. It's, it's talking about God. So God is spirit and invisible, and he can't be seen, yet this Redeemer is visible, and he is divine, which means he must be God incarnate. If we put this all together, we have Job placing his faith in a living, visible Redeemer, who both comes to his aid and brings judgment on his enemies. This Redeemer is God, but he will also become incarnate and stand upon the earth like all men. He will rise and triumph over death in the grave. This divine Redeemer will be the one who makes it possible for Job himself to be resurrected after he dies to be and yet be reunited with a physical, transformed body that enables him to see his Redeemer and God. This is Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. And now we can see why these verses are the most famous verses in the entire book of Job. Now we can see why 25 through 27, 28 are are called the most uh, clearest expressions in the Old Testament of 
a redeemer and the hope of the resurrection. It's because it's Jesus. And my eyes shall behold and not another. What's that about? What's that little tag at the end? And my eyes shall behold and not another. Well, who else would he see? My eyes shall behold. Sometimes in the Old Testament, when, when we're talking about, when, when the author's talking about seeing God, they mean more than just visual sight. They mean being in a right relationship with, with God. And the Hebrew word for another, um, for whatever reason, is translated as not another here, but it's also the word for stranger. It's very commonly translated as stranger. In fact, the American Standard Version says, and my, mine eyes shall behold, and not as a stranger. And I think that captures the sense maybe even a little better than the ESV. So it's having peace with God, not as a stranger. Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's, that's seeing God and being at peace with God. So when Job says, And my eyes shall behold, and not as a stranger, it's the idea here that after this is all over, as part of his endgame, he's going to be with God, he's going to see God, and he's going to be at peace with God. He's going to be in a reconciled relationship. Whatever's going on right now, and he doesn't have it all figured out, whatever's going on, this, where it seems like God is at enmity with him, and God is attacking him and cutting him off, whatever's happening right now, he has faith that in the end, and made possible by his Redeemer, he will be in a reconciled relationship with God. That's quite a statement of faith. Not as a stranger. What was 13 through 19 all about? Getting cut off from everybody that was in, in his life. And what is Job's greatest suffering? Being cut off from God, being treated as a stranger. And so he says, in the end, I know I'm not going to be a stranger. I'm going to be reconciled. And his Redeemer makes that possible. Uh, the, the very last little bit at 27, my heart faints within me. He's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed thinking about his endgame, being reconciled with God through his Redeemer. Our final verses of the passage, 28 through 29, if you say, how will we pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him? This is a final warning to Job's friends from Job. And he's saying, if you keep coming after me like you have been, if you keep pursuing me, if you keep insisting on the root of the matter is found in him, in other words, if you keep insisting that I'm the problem and the reason I've, I've had all this is because I deserve my suffering, if you keep going on that path, be afraid of the sword because God's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring punishment. And when it hits, you will know that there is a judgment. So you've been warned. Those are his final words. So end game. Our attempt here has been to look at it in more than simply the isolated verses. As beautiful as they are, as powerful as those statements are, we want to look at the entire context. So here it is. Bildad has hurled his endgame at Job and said, this is where you're going. This is your endgame. It's a place of inescapable darkness and terror and fire and, and eternal separation. And you have nothing more to look forward to, Job. You're just going to be marched off to the king of terrors. 
That's where you're going. And Job has responded. And what he's done is, is deflected that and, and shoved it off and hurled his own back. And he says, no, it's not. I'm not going to the place of the wicked. Instead, I know that my Redeemer lives, and because I have a Redeemer, I am going to stand before God, I'm going to see my Redeemer with my own eyes in a resurrected body, and I'm going to have peace with God. That's my end game, not yours. So that's what's going on in chapter 19. Now, the Redeemer of Job 19 is Jesus. We've established that. So the Redeemer of Job is our Redeemer. Job looked forward in faith to, to Jesus on, and coming and incarnate and, and on the cross to his Redeemer. We look backwards in, in faith and look to the cross and Jesus and his incarnate work, but we're looking at the same Redeemer. We're looking at the same God-man Jesus, our same kinsman Redeemer. But if you remember at the beginning, I said when it's time for application, it's going to get really personal really fast, and here it is. What is our end game? We've established that the Redeemer is the same. It's Jesus Christ. What is our end game? What's the end game for, for my life? Well, there are only two. There are only two kinds. Now, it's true that each one of us is going to have an eternity uniquely tailored to us. God is completely just and fair. He takes everything into account. But broadly then, generally, there are, there are only two kinds. Two kinds of end games. One with Jesus as your Redeemer, and one where Jesus is not your Redeemer. It's just that simple. There's only two kinds. Now, having Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, uh, excuse me, not having Jesus Christ as your Redeemer does lead to Bildad's endgame. That description of the inescapable place, darkness, terror, fire, eternal separation. And it's true that without his Redeemer, Job also would be eventually experiencing that endgame. And it's the same, it's true for all of us who, and anyone who does not place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's still true today. That, that endgame that Job, or excuse me, that Bildad painted and, and hurled against him, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's the endgame without Jesus as a Redeemer, and it is an endgame to be avoided at all costs. But in contrast, as long as has someone as Jesus Christ as their Redeemer, their endgame is secure. Their endgame is secure. And I would say that's, that's most of us, I would say that's the vast majority of us here this morning. We have Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. So our endgame is secure. There's nothing that can shake it. Our enemy, however, likes to cause doubt. Our enemy would like us to think that um, our end game is up in the air. At least a little bit. Our enemy likes to accuse and ultimately diminish the power of the cross because see, Satan wants to Satan's kind of like build at he's, he's hurling this, this end game at us, and, and like the three friends of Job, is insisting that's where you're going. You're, you're, you're a sinner. You've committed all this sin. You deserve it. That's where you're going. And so we continually have this bombardment from the enemy. 
making us want to doubt our forgiveness, which makes us doubt our, our end game. We commit some big, hairy, ugly, monster-sized sin, and we think, Ugh, maybe that, maybe that's it. And then the enemy comes in our, and whispers in our ear, "You've gone too far this time. You, <laughs> you, you've pulled off some some pretty crummy things in the past, but this one takes the cake. You've finally done it. You've been going back and forth on this sin, but oh." You have finally stepped out of the light of God's grace. Good job. And believers begin to doubt their forgiveness. They doubt their end game. I don't know if some of you have heard these stories, but I remember um, as a child hearing some of these stories I grew up on the Mississippi River and I would hear from, from older generations about those that have gone before us, especially in the early days of Illinois or maybe even before it became a state. And they would say, yeah, we didn't have this bridge over that connected here. They would cross over on the ice. And that sounded strange to me. I'd never gone over the Mississippi on anything except a car over a bridge. And so that sounded really dangerous. And they said, oh yeah, yeah. They'd ride horses over it. That seemed really strange. And then they said, yeah, even early on, they would uh, they'd drive over it. I would think, what? How could the ice support a car? Of course, this was back when, you know, Model Ts and things like that. I wouldn't try it with, uh, with an F-250 or anything today, 6,000 pounds or so. But back then, it worked. They did it. They actually did it. So there was a, a man who was living back in the late 1800s, or excuse me, late 1700s, and he was trying to get home, and he had to cross the Mississippi River, and he had to get home because night was approaching, and it was getting dark, and he had a load of firewood, and it, he was trying to get to his family so they could have fire and heat that night. And he got to the river, and he thought, I think it's strong enough, but... I'm not sure, and so he would do the old uh, one foot at a time, test it, and then wait, and then test it, and then wait. And he got to the middle, and this was slow going, and the Mississippi is quite wide, and it was getting really dark out, but he thought, if it's going to be weak, it's going to be weakest in the center. So he dropped down on all fours with all the wood on his back, and he began to slowly kind of shuffle his way over the, the ice, and he was, he was shaking at some points because he thought... Maybe himself, but with all this wood on his back, he, he didn't want to take any chances. He didn't want to fall through. And when he got right to the middle, he was at his, as most uh, scared as he, as he was going to be. And all of a sudden he heard something back behind him. And he, he didn't know what it was, but he didn't want to make any sudden movements. And then all of a sudden it was a commotion. And it, and it came up and upon him. And just as he turned, he saw and a team of horses was rushing across the ice with a driver and a sleigh that was full of wood and he felt like a fool because he was crawling over on all fours and he thought well if they can go across then I guess it's safe for me to walk so he got up and he ran the rest of the way across the river there are times when as Christians we think we have so much sin on our back that surely 
we're going to fall through. Surely, God has been gracious to me all these years, but this time, I've really done it, and I, I don't think the ice is going to hold. Jesus can forgive much more sin than you can carry. Jesus can carry uh, you and all your sin, and much more than that, over any kind of problems that you might encounter. The solid ice of Jesus' atonement will hold you up, your sin up, and and much more. Don't ever doubt the power of Jesus' blood to forgive your sin. Our end game is not determined or based upon our meritorious work. Our end game is based upon and depends upon the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you have Jesus as your Redeemer, then your end game is secure. Now there's a fine line here. I want to be sure we're on the same page, and I don't want to give cheap grace to anybody. If if you're someone who is walking in sin, if you're someone who is habitually practicing with no repentance, it's part of the fabric of your life, it's who you are, it's what you do, and you're not turning from it, and it's day in, day out, walking and wallowing in sin, then, then no, you don't have the assurance of Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm talking about those who, to the best of their ability, are walking with Jesus Christ, but who blow it and who sin big time and then repent. Your end game is secure because your Redeemer lives. I want to make sure we all understand that. Because we understand that Jesus came to save sinners, right? Mark 7, uh, 2.17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see what Jesus is saying there to his, to his critics? He's saying, uh, yeah. <laughs> who do you think I'm calling to repentance? Sinners. Like you and me. Sinners. To the chief priests and the elders, Jesus responded, he said, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You can't out the blood of Jesus. The end game for those who belong to Jesus is reconciliation with God. Forgiveness of your sins. Past, present, future, big sins, little sins, all sins. If you have trusted in Jesus, your physical resurrection is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. As surely as the sun rose this morning, you will rise from the dead. You will see Jesus face to face with a glorified, perfected body. You will join the rest of the redeemed with God and with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth, which will surpass the perfection and beauty and purity of the original paradise of Eden. It is beyond anything you and I could ever imagine or even think of. Every single pure and good desire of your heart will be perfectly satisfied and you'll be perfectly content. There will be no disease, no sickness, no sin, no tears, no problems. 
perfect worship and fellowship forever. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. Job was so sure of his endgame that he uttered this statement of faith in the midst of some of what could be arguably called the worst circumstances that anybody could ever go through. In the midst of that, he uttered the statement of faith in his Redeemer. He believed him. He believed his endgame was secure, even when his friends were pounding him over and over and over, insisting that he was headed towards a different endgame. Our endgame is just as secure as Job's. It is not a daydream. It is not a longing. It is not a desire or religious fervor or, or thinking or hoping that something might happen one day. It is a reality based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the work of our Redeemer. I promise you on the authority of Scripture, if you come to Jesus and you repent and you believe in him, your endgame is secure. Even though you die, yet in your flesh you will see God. You will see your living Redeemer, Jesus, with your own eyes. Amen. Heavenly Father, from an from a intellectual standpoint, from a, from a knowledge standpoint, we, we acknowledge and confess and and rally behind the truth of our secure salvation. But in the, the darkest of times, when we're shuffling across the ice, the enemy likes to insert doubt. Father, we pray in faith that you would remove all doubts of our salvation. Give us not only the head knowledge, but the heart assurance that our salvation is secure because of the work of our Redeemer. And as a result, let us walk boldly through life, worshiping you, following Jesus, doing what you have called us to do as, as members of your body, your church. Father, we thank you for our salvation, which is secure in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Amen.